Lord, as we open your word this morning, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us and cause us to see those things that each of us might need, not always the same things, but you know what we need and what we can take from this morning that will make a difference in our walk with you. We want to draw close to you, strong in you, and, and, and be a testimony and a witness for you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Again, this morning in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, and uh, continuing in the Sermon on the Mount, very familiar passage to anybody that's been in church for any length of time, both uh, from the time of Sunday school to worship services to Bible studies, and many, many books on top of it written about the verses we'll look at this morning. Uh, in the uh, English Standard Version, the, uh, the subtitle for it, which is called Salt and Light, and uh, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, starting with the 13th verse of chapter 5 of Matthew. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Last week we were talking about why the church is persecuted within the world. Um, when you look at it globally, we see all sorts of kinds of persecution going on today. Uh, some of it is absolutely unbelievable as to what is happening to some in the world. And in other places, it's so subtle that you don't even realize it's happening in a sense. Uh, it, it, but it's always there, and there's a reason for it. And this is what I tried to emphasize last week. Uh, the world is not anxious to hear from a people who say, this is God's Word, God's breathed Word. They're not anxious to hear that, basically because if it's true, then it means that you have to respond to it. The irony of that is that if you reject it, you've already responded to it. And... Uh, John makes it pretty clear, if you reject the, the light that Christ has brought, then you're in darkness and you're already condemned. And so, uh, as we looked at this last week, we went through what, what the Word of God says and why the world rejects it. The, the Word of God clearly says in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, He put into effect a plan. A people that He would call to be His own, to be His bride, uh, to be the bride of, of Christ, to be the bride of His Son. And in Philippians, we find that that plan was enacted by one who would leave heaven, Jesus, who would, would leave heaven even though he was equal with God, did not uh, claim, you know, have to work for that in any way. He set his glory aside and came to earth. And as a man, and I mean in every way, we know the story from uh, conception to birth to death. 
And He did that for the sake of man, to serve man, to bring man into a relationship with God, to be able to allow us to stand before the throne of God and, and realize that we are justified by Him, not by our works, by His work, and as a result have eternal life. No condemnation. John emphasizes that with, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, it goes on to say that the Word was the light that came into the world. And then he goes on to say in verse 14 of chapter 1 of John that the Word came and dwelt among us. So if the Word is the light, then the light came and dwelt among us as well. Synonymous together. And of course, the Word being identified as Jesus coming and dwelling among us. Jesus said Himself in John chapter 8, verse 12 that He is the light of the world. So, emphasizing that, what we really looked at, I think, fairly closely last week, when you realize that, you, you, and, and what Jesus was saying through the Beatitudes, if you are actually following after Christ, if you actually come to that point where you are poor in spirit and you mourn over your sin and you... you humbly accept His plan of salvation, that you hunger and thirst after Him and so on, that, that as, you, as these things change in you, uh, that the world's going to see you, that you are part of this plan. They might not understand the plan. They may not understand the details, but they're going to see in you Christ and they're going to reject it. And they may subtly do that. I had a friend that I worked with in, in San Jose uh, his wife had became a Christian. He was very, very angry. He didn't want anything to do with Christianity. Uh, Steve came to me over and over and over again trying to uh, catch me, if you will. Uh, kind of reminded me of myself uh, just a few years before. That time I was in Bible college. I was working at a furniture store uh, as a contractor to uh, do furniture finishing and touch-up and repair work. And uh, so I was there almost every day. I had a spray booth there. And he was trying to get my uh, ire up, if you will. And, and the, I had a weekend ministry. And when I came back to work Monday morning, there was a cross on my spray booth up on top, a nice wooden cross. He'd gone out of his way to, to make it. He thought he would offend me. And, and uh, I, I, I thanked him for recognizing that I was kind of holy ground, and he, and he didn't even understand. I said, well, see, I lacquer all my, my uh, memory work for school to the walls, <laughs> and so it's covered inside with Scripture. And, he, and, and it was just kind of like, no matter what he did, uh, he, he, and he tried many, many ways. The one thing that was interesting was at a point in time in, in, in that relationship of three years, uh, he came to me more than once, even though he would not admit at any time that I had something that he might be interested in. He would ask me and challenge me with different questions. I think I've shared with you that he's the one who said, the rules are too hard. You're expecting too much. You know, yeah, and I said, well, first off, it's not the rules. It's coming into Christ. The rules become something that you can see and, 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 and through his spirit. you can. And he says, no, it's just they're too hard. And I said, okay, Steve. Make up your own set of rules that you live by. Give it to me. Think about it. I don't want to hear it now. Think about it. Write it down and show it to me tomorrow. And he did. And, and things like integrity, honesty, all these kind of things were all part of it. And I said, Steve, have you ever broken any one of your rules? He looked at me and he said, oh, yeah. I said, well, then you say we've lowered the standard and we still need a Savior. 
And that was the last time he argued with me about it that way. And uh, I don't know whatever happened. Uh, I moved, he moved, and uh, so who knows. But the reality is that you know the world doesn't want to see it. And, and, it's, and if, it, if it comes close to them and they can see it in action, it becomes uncomfortable. Because what you're saying is, and, and this is what we are saying, it should be what we are saying, there is one way under heaven by which man must be saved, and it's under the name of Jesus Christ and Christ alone, and here's the way it's done. And when you become that specific and you say that's what this says and that's what truth is, then people realize that if that's the truth, then everything else in here, how do you deal with it? And the irony is, and that was always my argument, kind of, was once I became a, a, a believer, once God opened my eyes and touched my heart and, 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 could, and I started to see the truth, it became bit by bit, line by line, precept by precept. Kind of sounds like a scripture out of Isaiah. Uh, that, that, that you build... I don't, you don't instantly know it all. In fact, you're going to spend a lifetime trying to figure it out. And in some things, we're going to disagree, not on the cornerstone of Christ and the death, burial, resurrection, and salvation, but what we might disagree on are you know, some people, good friends of mine, that, that, that insist that part of worship is speaking in tongues and singing in tongues. I don't agree with that. Obviously, I'm in this church, not that church. Yeah. Uh, and so... Uh, but when we get together, we can hug each other. We can have a lunch together. We can talk about the Lord together. We can share our ministries together. Because we've agreed to disagree on that issue. Because it's not a matter of what the foundation is. It's part of the structure that we build. And it's just not a critical factor. So that foundation is what it is. And the foundation, quite candidly, is, is what scares the world of darkness most. Because it's cornerstone by Jesus Christ. So, Jesus starts here in verse 13. Well, let me go back. He, the idea that has to hit you is, Lord, if, if, if this is all true, and we follow after you and we're going to be persecuted, then I, the best thing for us to do is to make, make low profile, right? Well, you think about it. Doesn't that make sense? You, know, you want to get together quietly. You don't want to make a big splash. You want to be left alone. If, the, if people aren't going to want anything to do with it, let's just keep it kind of simple and 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 kind of sheltered out of the out of the the the, the, the path of things. You know. And Jesus just kills that. That's an implication by the statement. He just kills it with the next line in verse 13. He says, "You are the salt of the earth." Now for People at that time, the salt of the earth may have had a, a, a stronger meaning than, than what we might think. I, I wrote down here on my uh, notes some, somewhere here um, different sayings that we have today. Uh, take this with a grain of salt. I'm sure most of you have heard that at some point at some time, even the younger people in here. And uh, you think about a grain of salt. Try to picture in your mind and feel in your hand a grain of salt would be nothing different than a, uh, a very fine grain of sand, okay? And, and you try to think about it and say, uh, I, I want to salt my french fries. 
Now, I don't know about you, and I'm not supposed to have a lot of salt, but French fries have to be salted. Okay? And, uh, and so, I've got my grain of salt. Yeah, you all understand. Take this with a grain of salt. Obviously, it does not mean anything significant in the sense of lift it. It means take it with, a, with, with the idea that it might not be true. It might Think about, you know, where it's coming from, check the source, whatever. A grain of salt is not much of an endorsement. Okay? So, we, we have an idea of a grain of salt. Well, I don't know how far back. I didn't do a research on that, how far back that saying goes. But if you were at a time of, 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 of the... the the New Testament being written and, and Jesus speaking, a grain of salt would have the same value and impact as, as what we just talked about because they were using it primarily to do what? Preserve meat and, 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 you know, uh, and, and fish. Yes, to savor things, but quite candidly, the, that was the elite and wealthy people that could use salt for that. Uh, salt was an extremely expensive commodity. You used it where you needed it the most. And, uh, in fact, it was so valuable that Roman soldiers at times were paid partially and sometimes fully in, in salt as a weight because it could be exchanged for other things. It had that value. In fact, that's where the phrase, not worth his salt, comes from. A Roman soldier paid in salt and, and, and somebody would say he's not worth his salt. I'm sure, again, you've already all heard that. You know, it means somebody isn't a very good worker or a very hard worker or a very dependable worker, whatever. You don't certainly want to hear it about yourself. He's not worth his soul. Yeah. Um, then there's the one phrase that is the opposite of all of this. Why, those people are the salt of the earth. Yeah, we lift that up and turn around and say, there, there's a very positive statement. It means they're the very essence of what it is to, to, to be good and, 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 and all. So, you know, they're the salt of the earth. So they'll be dependable people. So we have these phrases centered around salt. I'm sure there's more than that. But the primary purpose was to, to preserve meat. And, uh, uh, and so if that, as you look at that, the, the primary purpose then as Jesus, as a metaphor, was putting it here, was to preserve the world. Uh, and I, I put in here in my own notes again, uh, not the government, not education. It, that's not their job to preserve the world. It's not their job to tell us what a world preserved world is or looks like. It's the job of the church to show people what a preserved world looks like. When the government gets into it, when education gets into it, you know, we've, we've seen what's happened over the last hundred years with the education system. My grandfather was in the education system starting in 1892. He was a full-time teacher. He was a, a man who was a believer, loved the Lord. And he started his first full-time work at 19 in Lompoc, California. Stayed there for the rest of his life. And he made a comment that I couldn't possibly understand because I'm only 10 or 11 years old. I guess he wasn't making it to me. He was talking to, his, to, to my uh, uncle and my dad about the, the downward trend of education. New math uh, you know, was one of the things. New ways of reading without phonics. Uh, all of these types of things that were happening in the 50s, which was part of my life. I lived in Santa Barbara. 
Santa Barbara is a beautiful place to live, but it also has UCSB. Now, I'm not saying anything negative other than it was a teaching college, primarily bringing out teachers. They were always on the avant-garde of, of the newest math, the newest reading methods, and all the different school districts in Santa Barbara were vying for each other in the sense of who had the best programs. And so I went... And, because of the nature of some things going on in my family, I lived in four different school districts in, in my elementary career, and I had four different kinds of reading programs. As a result, I never learned to read. They never found out I was, was ADHD and had some reading problems, and they, those things followed me clear into to college before they were identified. And uh, when they tried to fix it, we ended up laughing about that too. But... Uh, what I'm getting at is, is that, you know, all of this stuff, it, it wasn't, my grandfather was just disappointed, I guess is the only thing I can say. He had retired at that point, and so uh, he wasn't part of it. But he, the other thing he just really, and I'll just share with you from his perspective, he just, he looked at unified school districts as, as the bane of, 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 of what was going to bring Christian, or bring uh, education down. The idea of bringing all these schools together, eliminating one-room schoolhouses. And you know, it's interesting. Some of it may be true. You know, because he said you're going to cater to the mean instead of the individual. And he said in a one-room schoolhouse, you can be in eighth grade math and, and, and fifth grade reading where you belong. And, uh, and get the best out of your education rather than just trip along. And... Uh, so, uh, my tirade side notes. Um, the reality that is, is, is what we're looking at is it's not the government's job to, to try to change the world. And our, and our attitude has been, if we throw enough money, if we throw enough education, if we throw enough government regulations, we will fix things. How many times in the world have we tried to fix things, even on an international or global level? And that takes us back to... Uh, not certainly in my lifetime, but within the era of my lifetime, meaning in the, 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 the century of my birth, and that would be to look at World War I, the world to end all wars, and, and uh, the League of Nations to be the thing that would bring that about, and World War II, uh, and the United Nations, and, and, and we're still where we are. And uh, we, again, have thrown money, we've thrown... Our, our, our young people, and all, not us, us, but others, uh, lives uh, at, at all of these things, and, and we still don't change it. And the reason it doesn't change, and I go back to a song that came out of the 70s that, that uh, one of the, the, the uh, Christian gospel groups were singing was, there won't be peace in the world until Jesus sits at the, at the, at the table. Okay? And so we realize that until Christ returns, there will not be peace in the world. In fact, we understand what Jesus says. It will get worse. It will not get better. That makes us an interesting group of people. We're pessimistic optimists. We're pessimistic because we read this, we see the end and how it declines, and people say, what a, what a bleak future you give us. And I said, oh, no, no, no. You, we read the very end. We're optimistic. Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. Um, so, with all of that, the church is called... The Christian is called to be the salt of the world, to be the person who brings uh, the, the, the idea of what it is to live a life that brings purity. 
and, and stands before the God of all creation. God says, you must be holy as I am holy. We say there is no way to do that other than through Jesus Christ. There will be no peace other than through Jesus Christ. There will be no peace between men until Jesus Christ is in the midst. Jesus even uses a phrase that I thought was interesting. Uh, if the salt becomes uh, uh, unsalty, for an easy way of looking at it. And I was looking this up, and I have to struggle with this because... Jesus could be having a metaphor here that, that's impossible because salt basically can't become unsalty. It can become diluted and it can become so diluted or mixed with another sub, sub thing that you can hardly see it, taste it, or find it, but it always stays salt. And, and I thought, that's interesting. So... Uh, is Jesus saying that the, the, the church being diluted by the world? And I can see that. And I kind of have to say, that's where I went with this. And I'm not the only one. Numbers of, 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 of commentators and, and, and theologians do as well. But it hit me that it could also be the reality that it, it, it's an impossibility, but, but in a sense of a spiritual sense, if, if, if what was salty became unsalty, uh, uh, that only Jesus could fix it. <laughs> you know, that, that might be something in that. But I think the real key of this thing is, is the idea of it gets so diluted with the world's influence. And Paul was concerned about that. He spoke about that over and over and over again. And so, uh, I put it here, the salt can't stop being salt, but can choose to not be used by becoming useless because of its diluted way of looking at things in the world. Um, it loses its ability to preserve. If you've got salt that is so spread out that with other substances, let's say you've got, for people like me, you've got a little bit of real salt with a thing that's not real salt and, and, and other herbs in it to make it taste you know, good for cooking, at least they think it does. Um, if I took that and rubbed it with meat on the meat and tried to preserve it, it wouldn't work. Okay, so that was the way I picture this. Christ is the one who is able to gather the salt together to pull it out of its inappropriate dilution and mix, if you will, and make the church strong again. I think that's where the word revival comes from. Revival is not for the the unsaved. I, I Now, don't misunderstand because it's... It is, but it's not. What I'm saying is the church is what revival is. The unsaved can't be revived. They've not been, you know, vived. Uh, you know, uh, they, they've not been made alive, so they can't be made, you know, alive again, so to speak. But, but to be revived, the church, when it is revived, and we've seen two great outpourings and many, many uh, other not as big in the history of the United States, the first great awakening in the 1730s, the second great awakening in the early 1800s, and other subsequent uh, movements of, of God in the church where the church is revived and the next thing you know there's a, a, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and people getting saved in large numbers. Okay, But it's because the church has been revived and as a result is going out and being what God has supposed, is, wants us to do. He has separated us out somehow, pulled us together, and, 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 and resalted, if you will. Uh, and, and, and gotten rid of all the, the mix that didn't belong in there 
and made us salty again. But not only are we salt, we're light. And I know that we covered this last week. I'm not going to go into tremendous detail with it this morning. But you are the light of the world. And I, I, I take exception, not because I'm any kind of scholar, but because I actually the opposite. I'm so simple-minded that I just don't quite get the, the, the peril. Somebody could probably figure, explain it to me scientifically. But people say we're just like the moon reflecting the light of the sun. And I've, I've read that over and over and over again. We're, the, you know, we're reflecting the light of the sun just like the moon reflects the light of the sun. First off, the moon fluctuates. It doesn't always reflect the light of the sun to us, so that bothers me a little bit as a, as a metaphor. But I am notorious for taking metaphors too far. So let's just have a full moon as a reflection of the light of the sun. That's not what this says. It doesn't say you're a reflection of the light. It says you are the light. And that is because the Holy Spirit isn't around us reflecting. He is in us. And so the light is not coming out here and reflecting off of us. It is coming from inside out. Okay, that's important to me. And so when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, uh, you know, it starts with Jesus is the light of the world. He who follows me, Jesus says, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And I believe the light of life is the Holy Spirit in us, working through us as we become light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world, the Holy Spirit in us, indwelling us. Thus, we become light to the world as well. And, uh, and, and not light to the, to the, to the, to the, to the, um, to the house alone or to, to the church alone, but to the world. In other words, it's not confined to an area. It's not some low, and this is in contrast again to this idea that, well, if we're going to be persecuted, we should be low profile. It's the opposite. He says, if anything, we should look like a light on the side of a hillside, uh, a city on the hill. I don't know how many times you have ever been in real you know, darkness, but normally the, the times that we get those opportunities is, is we're significantly away from, from major uh, city and population areas. Maybe way out into the, to the, the, the hills here, or maybe up into uh, the, the lakes and, and areas up north, or, or maybe into the desert in Southern California, into Arizona. Uh, but normally where you get so far away from city noise and light, that when you, the, you, you look up and you say, my goodness, I didn't know there were so many stars. Because we're not getting the light blocked by what the city is. Gosh, there could be a whole other sermon metaphor to that, huh? But anyway, um, the, the idea is, is that we have this, this, this picture of, of being able to see clearly. And when those times come, it is amazing how a small amount of light can be seen so far away. I was so curious about this that I, I, I typed in, how far can you see a candlelight? Because I've heard all my life, oh, you can see a candlelight in, act, in the right conditions, the real darkness like we were just talking about. You can see a candlelight for, for a few miles. I thought, no way. Not only a few miles, 10 miles is not unusual. And if the atmosphere, that has to do with the humidity and everything else is right, up to 30 miles, a candlelight could be spotted if you were on a mountainside. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm I, I blown away with that. And this is what Jesus wants us to be. 
Something that, you know, he wants, you know, he doesn't want us to, uh, what I mean is he, he wants us to be light. He doesn't want us to be the candle out here that you can see. He wants us to be a light like a city on the hillside. Now you reverse that. You're out in the desert looking up to the, to the foothills and you see, or, or I don't know, uh, you could be, I, I was thinking even where I grew up, um, whenever the, the county fair was going, they had big, huge lights and all this kind of stuff. And even though we were uh, 15, 20 miles away from it, you could sit up on the foothill and you could see all the light coming from the county fair. You know? I think that's what he wants us to be. Where at a distance, someone can say, oh, look at the light. Like on a hillside. And even if it's in a house, you're not going to hide the light. Why would you bother to light the candle? Oh, look, we need some light. Let's light the candle. You know, so that you can't see. And he says, you remove the, the, the you, you light the candle and it should light the whole house. You've got to remember the whole house was normally one, one room back then. But the idea was is that everybody could see what they're doing. So you know what I did? I went and lit a candle in my kitchen and, and, and put it in and shut out all the other lights. I can't turn the light off outside the, the, the house that, that the city owns. Well, I could, but Ted would be mad at me for the way I did it. Um, and, and so... Uh, I, 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 but I lit the candle and I set it on the counter. And you know what? From that light, I could open the cupboard doors and read labels. I could find things that I wanted to find in the cupboards. Now, you didn't even have to take the light over here. Now, if I have two city uh, uh, lights on the ceiling, sometimes I can't even see that clearly into the cupboards. Kind of interesting. So I, I was looking at this and just saying, it's amazing what a little bit of light can do. And it brought me back to an analogy that was shared with me, which I have owned all my Christian walk for myself. And it's off of Campus Crusades uh, uh, circles of, 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 of thrones. I don't know if you've ever seen these. But, but there's three, when they talk about a, a, a person's life, they have three circles. And there's a throne in each one. And there's all the things of a person's life in each one. The first one, the throne is there and, and, and the S is on the throne. And, and, and the cross is outside the circle completely, and there's chaos basically in the circle, and, and, but self is ruling. That's the idea. The next one is Jesus is on, you know, the cross is on the throne, everything's in order, and self is at the foot of the throne worshiping. The third one is the mixed salt one, you know, salt and other substances. Jesus is on the throne, self is out here someplace trying to run everything, and things are chaos again. <laughs> Okay, we're saved, we're in a right relationship with Christ on a, on a, on a, on a, a, a salvation level, but we're not allowing Him to be the Lord of, of the throne. Or the, we're on the, excuse me, we're on the throne, Christ is, at the, is out in the circle, but all around. And so, what to me that was like having, you know, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. How many of you have ever seen that painting? What's missing? Doorknob or handle on the outside. What's really funny is a church I went to in, in, in Atascadero. I saw the picture for the first time, paid any attention to it. It had a handle on it. The person had bought a paint-by-numbers thing, and they figured they'd blown it. And they actually painted a handle on it on their own. Uh, but the whole idea is, is we have to open the door. And he said, because if you open the door and invite me in. So somebody painted it that way. It's some famous painting. And the idea was that, the, that Jesus is waiting for us to open the door. And I realized, taking this campus life picture, we opened the door and let Jesus in, but there's still all this chaos. There was another story that went with this. was Where is your, your crown room in your house? 
And in other words, where are the few places where you still are in charge? Is it the TV room? Is it this room? Is it the garage? Is it whatever it is? Where's the crown? And then you hear Jesus is coming to visit. And you clean up everything as quickly as you can. And, and, and so you found a, one closet and you shoved all your personal little crowns into the one closet. Jesus is walking through the room and he opens the door and all the crowns come falling out. You know, um, and, and, and so it came to me this kind of a picture. When I became a Christian, I opened up the entryway of my house to Jesus Christ. Off the entryway are all these rooms and hallways and stuff of like that that are parts of my life. Uh, my business life, my, my personal uh, television life, my, my magazines right, my reading right life, uh, my book life, whatever. All these different areas of my life. And when Jesus comes in, His light fills the entryway. And, 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 I'm, I'm, and, and just like a light can do, even though I'm standing on the other side of the door right now in my, in my TV room, I've got, he's standing outside that door knocking. <laughs> I'd like to come in here too. Yeah. And I can't see him face to face, but because light has a way of doing this, he's coming in right underneath the door. And I can actually see his light in my room. And I realize I need him in here, too. I don't only need him in here. I need him in every room in my house. I realize there are rooms where I invite him in, and then, and then uh, I guess I remodel or something because I make the room smaller and, 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 and lock him out again. Uh, but I don't know if that works for you, but that's just me. I have to have graphic pictures to see things. And what I realize is the light, Jesus is the light. He brings his light with him. He wants the light to come through us. It only comes through us, I believe, clearly when we are sharing our rooms together. You know what I mean? It's, it's when we're with, with him and in agreement with him that he is the Lord of this part of my life. At that point, my, life, my light is shining. I do know and believe that it works, meaning that that guy did put a cross on top of my spray booth. Something was working right. I was far cry from anything perfect. But he saw something in me that he needed to mock because he saw it in his wife too. And it bothered him. It hurt him. It wounded him. It scared him. And, uh, and so this is, what we, you know, this is what we bring with the light of Christ in us. We're not going to bring smiles and, 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 and bounding joy to everywhere we go. There are a few, as time goes on, that see your light and want to ask, you'll say, how come your light shines at this dark moment in your life? Bam, now you've got a captive audience. They want to know how come you're going through something that's a grief or a sadness or a sorrow or a financial burden or something and you're not pulled down by it because Christ is in you. And they'll ask. And they will ask if they see it at that time. They will ask. So, we have this light working in us. It's, and, and as a point, when Jesus, when we're in, a, in the public format, we are the light. And, uh, uh, you know, like I said, all sorts of physical experiments that you could do with light that's kind of fun to do. Um, D.A. Carson, who is a contemporary uh, theologian, he's written a lot of books uh, in, in the more recent years uh, on Scripture, and he's written a commentary on Matthew. 
And he says, our good works are the light men see. The norms of the kingdom worked out in the, in the lives of the heirs of the kingdom constitute the witness of the kingdom. Let me say that again. He says, our good works are the light men see. The norms of the kingdom, the standards of the kingdom, the norms of the kingdom, which includes the Beatitudes, okay, worked out in the lives of the heirs of the kingdom. That's all who believe. We're heirs to the kingdom of God with Jesus, joint heirs, constitute the witness of the kingdom implied to the world. The witness of the kingdom, the church, doing all to the glory of the Father is what the world needs to see. And when we fail, they need to see us in the sense of saying, Lord, forgive us and how that works. A friend of mine... uh, pastor for years, he said he's convinced that he made more acquaintances in the sense of dramatic sharing of Christ, if you will, in the times that he went to people to apologize for his foolishness or his foot in his mouth than he did sometimes in other ways, even as a pastor in the pulpit. And he was notorious. When the beeper watches first came out... Yeah, and anybody knows that you're sitting in a room, beep, 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 and especially the ones that, that, you know, and and one went off in the service, and he looked at that person, and the look was just daggers, like, oh, oh, you've ruined everything. I was just coming to the punch line. And, and, And afterwards, he had to go up and apologize to the guy, and the guy was so humiliated in the first place. And 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 he just and and he became a bond and a relationship that lasted for years because he had took the step of, of apologizing. And so I'm just saying, even in our, in our foolishness and in our, in our, in our, in our, in our foots in our mouth and all those kinds of things, as we come and do the right thing in a Christian format, we are still the light. We are still the salt. Some people will even be bothered by that because that means that they have to examine their lives and see what they should be going to people for. But that's not our problem. Our responsibility is to be the light and the salt in every aspect. Do all to the glory of the Father. In chapter 2 of uh, Philippians, uh, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, Christians are to shine as lights in the world. So it's always going to be a struggle. Shine so that you are known as a believer, your good works. And And I was just trying to make a list. What, are we, what's this, what do we want the light to do? Well, we, first off, we want the light working through us to make known the gospel. We want to, to, to make known, you know, the opportunity to guide someone to the gospel, to warn people about what happens if they reject the gospel, to comfort people even uh, in, in their, their sadness and to show them that there is hope. And, and uh, not that we are responsible for it, but it will happen because we are the light. We'll expose sin. And then the idea is also to encourage uh, in each other the walk with Christ, which brings revival on a, on a, on a frequent basis individually for us. Uh, we go home and we hear something maybe uh, in a sermon or on a tape or, or even in a song, and all of a sudden it just, boom, hits you and brings a sense of, of closeness to God, and there's a sense of revival that's even personal. You know, and... Uh, uh, I just, you know, today's reading in First Thessalonians chapter five uh, has had some verses in it that I'd like to uh, read again. 
Uh, first off, in, in verse 5, Paul writes to the Thessalonians that he says, You are the children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. This is who we are. Jesus said it. Again, here it is. We are the children of light. We are you know, of Christ the light. But then Jesus says, You are the light. It's a whole picture here. And within the framework of that, he goes on to say, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet of hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I think that we could say revive one another, encourage one another, build each other up. And so we are the light of God working together collectively. We are the light of individually encouraging each other. Sometimes we're the light of, of God working through us just sitting in our room alone and we become convicted. That's the light of God working in us. Uh, about something that you're doing or should be doing or not doing, whatever. And uh, just a reminder, you're the salt, you're the light. We are here for a purpose. And uh, Jesus says, as a result of the light coming into the world, as the plan before the foundation of the world, as a result of that, you who believe, who are of the day, he put it, as Paul wrote, you are not destined for wrath, but for eternal life. I'd like to uh, invite you to share in communion. Uh, share and uh, hold the, the communion until we've all been served, and we'll share together.
As believers, we're not destined for wrath. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amazing statements. Amazing truths. Because the light came into the world and dwelt among us. And as the, the, as the, as the Word became flesh, He became flesh with a, with a plan that had been before the foundation of the world to purchase the covenant of grace so that we could all rest in salvation, know the eternal God, and never know the full consequence of our sin. I think that's an amazing thing. Because of Christ, we will never know the full consequence of our sin because He said it is finished on the cross. We rest in His finished work. He knows we will never know. What an awesome Savior we have. And the night he was betrayed, he took the bread uh, at the meal, so, and, and he instituted the, the, the sharing of communion, which we share every week here, uh, with the intent of, of leaving us a picture of what had occurred so we could be reminded over and over and over again the awesomeness of our God, that he came in the flesh, that his flesh was wounded on, uh, for us, the idea of broken and torn isn't the words of bones broken, but the idea of, of, of marred, disfigured, and, and, uh, and not regarded properly uh, in a sense. And, and that's what happened to the flesh of Jesus Christ as a result of giving up its life as the blood was poured out. So he came in the flesh. He asked that as often as we would share this bread, we would do this in remembrance for him. cup that he held up full of wine such a suitable remembrance for the blood of Christ as we were to drink it we were to think of it as being poured out at the cross the life is in the blood his blood was poured out his life was poured out his life was given he died on the cross just after he said it is finished gave his spirit up unto the Father. Okay? And he was dead. So much so people say, well, he wasn't he was breathing shallow. <laughs> or he was, you know, in a stupor. You've got professional executioners down at the bottom of the cross. They knew when the man was dead, but just to be sure, they pierced his side. Said that's the blood of a dead man. The blood and the water separated. He died for us. And he asked us First, he instructed us, this is to be done in remembrance of him because it's purchased the covenant of grace and to do it until he comes again. Let us share the cup together. Father, once again we come thanking you. It's an awesome thing to know the God of all creation is our Savior. We thank you for your revelation, your word, you have brought to us that we might know you better, 
we can see you and you tell us that's a clear picture. If anybody wants to know, you can be seen in nature as it is. But then you added to that your word that we might know you personally. We might see your plan of salvation. That we might see our sin and realize how much we are helplessly, hopelessly lost. But in a Savior, Jesus Christ, we become amazingly saved. Thank you. We worship you. We praise you. Go with us. Cause us to be the salt and light you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.